Hello, everyone, and welcome to Last Week in the Church. I am your host, John Allen. I'm also the editor of Crux, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, independent Catholic journalism. You can find us online at cruxnow.com. Last Week in the Church is our showcase, our signature, our premier weekly video. It's also our only one. But in any event, this is the show in which we take some kind of leftover Catholic news, in some cases almost a week old. We, we yank it out of the fridge, throw it into the frying pan, sprinkle over some secret sauces and spices, and serving it up, serve it up piping hot and delicious. Here's what we've got for you this week. The Pope and Ukraine. As the war in Ukraine wages on, Pope Francis dials up both the rhetoric and the diplomatic initiatives. We're going to break down all of that for you. The Vatican's trial of the century features a tale of two narratives, and those tales trundle on during this past week. We'll unpack what went down. And the Pope's travel schedule for this summer is becoming increasingly complicated. We already knew he was planning to go to Canada, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and South Sudan. Now, it appears he's also going to be going to Lebanon. We're going to step through the significance of all of those apostolic voyages for you. And finally, we're going to end this week with a special shout-out. All that and more is waiting for you on this week's Last Week in the Church, so please stick around. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday to you. Happy Tuesday, April 12th, 2022. This week, we are not coming to you from our normal studio here in Rome, but rather from our private home. We're welcoming you into our home. That would explain the abundant collection of wine, by the way, that you may see in the background. And although you can't see it, that's also matched by an equally abundant collection of liquor just over to my right. Our home actually boasts the largest private collection of Amaro in the city of Rome, and we're extremely proud of it. One day, I hope all of you who are watching this show can actually visit us here. I will serve up for you a nice plate of spaghetti al amatrachana. We'll have some Amaro. We'll have a good time. Just know you've got an open invitation. All right, we begin this week in Ukraine. The Russian war in Ukraine, as of today, is in its 46th day. The Russian strategy appears to have shifted a bit. Initially, they appeared to want to conquer the entire country, centering their offensive on the capital city of Kiev. That didn't work out so well for the Russians, quite frankly. The offensive bogged down, and you know, it turns out the Ukrainians don't want to be Russians. Go, go figure, Vladimir Putin. Uh, but they actually like being an independent nation standing on their own two legs, and it turns out they're willing to fight for it. And so, that having failed, the Russians now appear to be concentrating their, their resources on the eastern part of Ukraine, particularly those areas that recently, under sort of not exactly duress, but certainly encouragement from Moscow, declared autonomy and pro-Moscow sympathies, the, the area of the Donbass. 
There is now supposedly a Russian convoy that is several miles along, making its way towards the eastern city of Kharkiv. President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine has declared that they're ready to take that convoy on as well. We will, of course, see what happens. Now, as this war drags on, the Vatican and Pope Francis have increasingly sort of dialed up their their activism on the side of Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Pope Francis, on Sunday, Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, used some of his strongest language to date on the conflict. During his homily at the Mass, he actually said that Christ is crucified anew amid the folly of war, that Christ is crucified anew. Every time a mother is compelled to take her children and flee from the bombs of war. Now, in any other arena, that might seem like hollow political rhetoric. But bear in mind, this is the world's premier Christian leader on one of the holiest days on the Christian calendar. It is hard to imagine stronger rhetoric that a Christian leader might possibly employ than comparing the current war in Ukraine to the sufferings of Christ on the cross. And yet, that is what Pope Francis did. Later on Palm Sunday, during his traditional noontime Angelus address, the Pope floated the idea of an Easter truce in Ukraine. Now, and and let's, let's be entirely clear, he was not talking about the guns going silent just for one day, Easter Sunday, because... You have to remember, there are two Easter's involved in the Ukrainian conflict. Yes, there are Latin Rite Catholics in Ukraine who will observe Easter this next Sunday, April 17th. But the vast majority of the Ukrainian population, and certainly the Russian population, is Orthodox, and their Easter doesn't come until a week later, which will be Sunday, April 24th. So really what the Pope was talking about was a week-long truce with the two Easter's as bookends. The idea, presumably, would be to allow civilians in besieged areas who want to get out from under the fighting, give them a chance to do so safely, to open humanitarian corridors, to, to get aid to the people who need it, and so on. It is a lovely idea. Now, how realistic it may be, remains to be seen. To date, there aren't any particular indications that the Russians are terribly receptive. Although, let us remember that one of the, I mean, if you'll excuse the pun, one of the cardinal points of Vladimir Putin's self-presentation in the rhetoric he always uses is he presents himself as a kind of modern-day Charlemagne, defending Christianity, particularly Orthodox Christianity around the world, There's probably no figure on earth that he has had more photo ops with than Patriarch Kirill of the Russian Orthodox Church. And so, if an appeal for an Easter truce is made, not simply by the Pope, perhaps, but also by Orthodox leaders around the world, could be difficult, rhetorically and politically, for Putin to to deny that. Again, we will see how it plays out. Now, we need to make clear these are not just isolated incidents. They come in the context of a week in which, last Wednesday, Pope Francis was photographed during his general audience with a Ukrainian flag from Bucha, 
That's the site of those horrific civilian massacres that have now become familiar to the entire world. The Pope didn't merely hold this flag. He actually kissed it at one point during the general audience. Those images certainly made the rounds of the world. And at the same time that Pope Francis was delivering his Palm Sunday homily, one of his top aides, Polish Cardinal Konrad Krajewski, was behind the wheel of yet another ambulance that the Vatican is donating to Ukraine. He was driving this ambulance from Rome to Kiev. This is the second time Krajewski has done that. Which is leading some people in Rome to wonder if Krajewski is thinking, if this whole Cardinals thing doesn't work out, maybe he could have a second career as an EMT. That's probably not how it's going to play out. But but nevertheless, the point is the Vatican is doing everything it possibly can to signal its closeness to the suffering people of Ukraine. Actually, one veteran Vatican observer has even suggested But this conflict is the end of multilateralism as the cornerstone of Vatican foreign policy, multilateralism meaning that the Vatican puts some distance between itself and the West, tries to be equally close to all the players on the geopolitical stage, not take sides in the major superpower struggles of the day. And while that has been more or less the guiding principle of Vatican foreign policy since the era of Paul VI, it is sort of breaking down now as Pope Francis and his Vatican team increasingly take pro-Ukrainian and therefore, by definition, anti-Russian position. Increasingly, in Moscow, Pope Francis is seen as the chaplain of the the anti-Russian forces of the world. Now, how long-lasting that may be beyond the current conflict, we don't know, but it is nevertheless of tremendous significance as this conflict goes forward. All right, shifting gears. Let's move from Ukraine back to Rome, where the trial of the century continues to unfold. This, of course, is the Vatican trial, civil trial, which involves 10 defendants, including for the first time a cardinal of the Catholic Church, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, the former sostituto or substitute in the Secretary of State. Basically, that makes him the Pope's chief of staff. If you're a West Wing fan, think of the Leo character. That's the substitute in the Secretary of State. And they are all accused of various forms of financial crime, embezzlement, graft, overbilling, misrepresentation, basically anything you can think of, as part of a $400 million property deal in London in which the Vatican took a bath to the tune of about $217 million, give or take some change on either side. Now, from the beginning, this trial has been what I have called a tale of two narratives. Basically, the narrative that the prosecution is trying to sell in this trial is one of criminality, that the Vatican entered this deal in London with the very best of intentions. That is, they took money from Peter's Pence, that's the annual collection taken up among ordinary rank-and-file Catholics all around the world to support the works of the Pope. And they wanted to grow those resources by investing some of them 
in buying this former Harrods warehouse in the posh, posh, I emphasize, London neighborhood of Chelsea, which was going to be converted into luxury apartments, and the Vatican was going to make a ton of money on the rental income from those, those apartments. And this tale would have you believe that those wonderful plans were hijacked by a criminal band of unscrupulous financial operators, lay Italian businessmen, in league with corrupt officials inside the system in the Vatican, and essentially that the Vatican was fleeced, that it was robbed of these resources as a result of that criminal activity. Now, competing against that is the narrative being told by the defense attorneys, by the defendants themselves and others, which basically holds, if I may put it this way, that the problem with the London deal wasn't criminality, it was stupidity. Basically, that Vatican higher-ups entered into a series of stunningly dumb business deals in which they agreed, in writing, with the full approval of the most senior figures in the system, up to and including the Pope himself, they agreed to make all the payments that are now the objects of the indictments in this trial. And so that, according to this narrative, what's really going on here is not that anything criminal happened. It's simply a story of mismanagement coupled with the age-old tendency of hierarchs to look for scapegoats to blame for their own mistakes and their own ineptitude. Now, there was a new development in the trial this week. On Tuesday, the tribunal that is hearing this case heard testimony from Swiss lawyer René Bruelhardt who was the former head of the Vatican's Financial Information Authority, which is now the Financial Supervision and Information Authority. And basically, it's the the Vatican's financial watchdog unit. Bruelhardt was appointed to that position under Pope Benedict XVI in 2011. And his appointment was taken as a sign that, oh my God, reform is actually real. Because Bruelhardt was seen as a world-class expert in the struggle against money laundering and the financing of terrorism. He had been the head of the Financial Information Unit in Luxembourg, which transformed that small nation's reputation as a financial pariah, turned it into a a respected player in the international community. Later, Bruelhardt was the vice chair of the Egmont Group, that's the Global Consortium of Financial Intelligence Units, where one of his claims to fame was that after the Iraq War, he traced the ownership of Saddam Hussein's private jet and returned that aircraft to the people of of Iraq. And so he was seen as Mr. Clean Hands. And when he came in, This was seen as a sign that reform is for real. And in the years that Brulhart held that position, he was seen by virtually everyone as on the side of the angels when it came to the financial cleanup operation, which made it somewhat stunning that he was actually indicted over this London deal. 
In any event, we heard from him this past Tuesday, and basically what he had to say was that when his office learned of this deal in 2019, and by the way, that tells you something, because the origins of this deal were five years before, in 2014, yet the Vatican's financial watchdog unit wasn't even apprised of it until five years later. Anyway, when they learned of it, Brulhart said, they immediately launched an investigation but were basically shut down by the higher-ups. They were told that their role really should be to support the Secretariat of State, which was the agency in the Vatican that had entered into this deal. And further, he said, it became abundantly clear that the Secretariat of State had decided that they were going to make payouts to the second of the two Italian businessmen that the Vatican got in bed with along the way, a guy by the name of Gianluigi Torzi. Brulhart and others felt that the Vatican actually ought to sue to get their money back. But instead, the decision was made that they were going to try to buy their way out of this deal. And in fact, so pleased was the entire like leadership class with this arrangement with Torzi that Pope Francis himself actually hosted a celebratory dinner to celebrate the deal they had made with Torzi on May 23rd, 2019. By the way, that's the same deal that is now the object of a criminal indictment as part of this trial. In other words, Brulhart's testimony would support the idea that nobody hoodwinked the higher-ups at the Vatican. They entered into these deals eyes wide open and, and frankly, have no one to blame but themselves. Now, you know, what is eventually going to happen in terms of verdicts in this trial, we don't know. But in the court of public opinion, this is certainly the kind of testimony that is not going to help the Vatican make the argument that, well, basically, that it got taken advantage of. As, as ever, we will see how these things play out because there are more witnesses to hear from and, and more evidence may emerge that, that changes our impression. All right. Pope Francis, channeling his inner Willie Nelson, you know, on the road again, has compiled a travel schedule this summer that, well, to call it prodigious is probably an exercise in understatement. We already knew that Pope Francis was planning to go to Canada sometime this summer. Talk is that's probably late July. And this is in response to a request from indigenous communities in Canada that the Pope travel to Canada in order to deliver an apology for the mistreatment of indigenous persons in church-run residential schools. A number of revelations have recently come to light about the horrific abuse that indigenous children suffered in these schools. The Pope apologized when representatives of three indigenous communities were recently in Rome, and he also vowed that he would travel to Canada to deliver that same apology to the entire nation. So that was already on the book, sort of, we kind of already knew that was going to happen. We also already knew that the Pope was planning to travel to the Democratic Republic of Congo 
and to South Sudan in early July. The dates for that trip are, Ju are July 2nd to the 7th. So he will spend July 234 in the DRC and then 567 in South Sudan. What emerged this week is that in addition to all of that, the Pope is also, this has not been officially confirmed, but all but, the Pope is planning to go to Lebanon in June. So if you are scoring at home, that's at least five different countries in three continents that an 85-year-old pontiff with one lung and a bum knee is planning to visit this summer. I mean, that's something. Briefly, let's sketch what the importance of all of these trips would be. We, we just talked about the importance of the Canadian trip. Beyond that, it's also worth saying that this will be the first time that Pope Francis has been in North America since his trip to the United States several years ago, and the first time a Pope has been in Canada since John Paul II went for World Youth Day in 2002. So it is almost by definition a big deal. Now, in terms of the Africa swing, the Democratic Republic of Congo, if you were going to make a list, and I'm, I'm, I, I just phrased that as a kind of, you know, counterfactual thing. The truth of it is, I have made this list, okay? If you were going to make a list of the five most consequential Catholic nations over the next hundred years, the Democratic Republic of Congo would almost certainly be on it. By the middle of this century, that is the year 2050, given population trends, the Democratic Republic of Congo will be the fifth largest Catholic nation in the world, after Brazil, Mexico, the Philippines, and the United States. In fifth place will be the DRC. And in terms of levels of faith and practice, it will be probably the second largest practicing Catholic nation in the world after the Philippines. By definition, it's important. In addition to that, uh, by 2050, it will also be by far the largest Catholic nation in the world in which French is, a, is the principal language. There will be almost 100 million French-speaking Catholics in Congo and about 50 million French-speaking Catholics in France. And by the way, of those Catholics in France, only about 10% will go to church on Sunday, about 85 to 90% of the Congolese will go to church on Sunday. So in the Francophone realm, and really on the entire global stage, demography, and remember August Comte famously said, demography is destiny. The Democratic Republic of Congo is destined to be a pace-setter Catholic nation over the next century and beyond. So the Pope's presence there is massively important. Now, in terms of South Sudan, it is the youngest independent nation in the world. It gained its independence only in 2011 from the Sudan. And the Catholic Church played an enormously important role in that independence process. In fact, one observer from the United Nations said that South Sudan would not be an independent nation today were it not for the role played by Catholic radio in the country, which basically was the voice and the carrier of the independence cause. And yet, despite the Catholic footprint in South Sudan, it is a nation mired in conflict. The harmony that the nation enjoyed after independence very quickly broke down into power struggles between rival camps, basically two rival political figures with their own followers, 
who engaged not just in, in nasty rhetoric, but actually open violence in the streets against one another. You may remember that quite famously in 2019, Pope Francis summoned these rival leaders to the Vatican, and then he fell to their feet and he kissed their feet, begging them to stop the violence. That induced a kind of momentary truce, but then the cycle of violence began again. So the Pope's presence in South Sudan is not merely a mission of peace and reconciliation, but it is also a test case as to whether a country in which the Catholic Church is an important piece of the social fabric can actually reflect Catholic social teaching, or if it is destined to go down the same path of recrimination, violence, and ultimately self-destruction as so many other spots on the map. And then finally, we come to Lebanon. Lebanon is a critical nation in the Middle East for a variety of reasons. One, in percentage terms, it has the highest Christian population. Now, in raw numbers, there are more Christians in Egypt than in Lebanon, but in Egypt, they're only about 10% of the population. In Lebanon, they're a third of the population. By far, the largest Christian community in Lebanon is the Maronite Christian Church. Actually, the Lebanese constitution requires that the president of the country be a Christian, the prime minister be a Muslim. And so it is a country where Christian-Muslim sort of coexistence is written into the fabric of society, and it's also written into the constitutional order. There is a great fear that if Lebanon were to succumb to a kind of conflagration that broke down along Christian-Muslim lines, that would have consequences for the wider region, for the entire Middle East, and maybe the whole world. Now, fueling the fires in Lebanon are not merely sort of long-standing sectarian tensions, but more recent economic and political crises. Since the bombing of that, or, or, or rather the, the explosion in that factory along the Beirut waterfront not long ago, the country has seen an economic implosion, the likes of which are staggering to imagine. The estimate now is that something like 80% of the Lebanese population is living in poverty. And bear in mind, this is a country that not so long ago was, re was regarded as the crown jewel of the Middle East. Beirut was regarded as the Paris of the Middle East. And it had a large, vibrant middle class. And so the, the implosion of this country is of obvious pastoral and political interest to the Pope. And we will see if his presence in the country is able to sort of turn things around. A footnote, and this is just a reminder of those sectarian tensions we were talking about. I was on Pope Benedict XVI, Pope Benedict XVI's trip to Lebanon a few years ago. And what I remember most vividly from that trip is we were riding in the press bus through downtown Beirut, and our route took us through a neighborhood that was controlled by Hezbollah. Now, Hezbollah in the United States is seen as a terrorist organization, but in Lebanon, it's seen as kind of a social movement. I mean, yes, they do take up arms and fight wars, 
but they also take care of poor people and they run clinics and hospitals and they run schools. And they enjoy fairly widespread popular support, obviously, particularly among the Islamic population. Anyway, we're, we're riding through a neighborhood controlled by Hamas or Hezbollah. And they had signs up welcoming Pope Benedict to Beirut. Now, these signs had both a front and a back. The front was in French, and it read, Pope Benedict, welcome to Lebanon, the land of coexistence. On the back, in Arabic, it read, welcome to Lebanon, the land of resistance. And this is a reminder that those sectarian tensions are never far beneath the surface in Lebanon. It requires strong leadership to hold them in check. We will see if Pope Francis is able to deliver a badly needed shot in the arm to the Lebanese nation when and if he indeed goes there in June. All right, finally, before we wrap the show this week, quick shout out. My wife, Lisa, and I recently made some new friends of the Jorman family, Greg and Bridget and their daughter, Annie. Annie is currently hospitalized here in Rome, so a solicitation for prayers, vibes, best wishes for Annie. May you get better soon, and may you be sprung from the hospital as quickly as possible and once again breathe the sweet air of freedom. All right, that's our show for this week. A reminder that you can find full coverage of all the stories we've talked about on the Crux site. That is cruxnow.com. One more time, your one-stop shopping destination for the very best in smart, wired, and independent Catholic journalism. We will be back here next Tuesday, same bat time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week, and we will talk to you again soon.